Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for December 19th, 2019, the Read My Letter edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. So happy, me and John and Emily. That is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes and Emily Bazelon of Yale University Law School and the New York Times Magazine. We are all together. We are gathered in Skyline Studios so in Oakland, California. Together. Hello. It's so nice to be with you guys. I know. We're so lucky. I love it when we're all together. I know. It's really, we should, uh, anyway. Yes, it's wonderful. <laughs> so no, we should seek to, to make this happen more Absolutely. Often, we are together on Wednesday, and it's Wednesday afternoon Eastern, and so the House is still debating the articles of impeachment that they're considering for the president. So by the time you listen to this, the House may have impeached the president, probably will have impeached the president. You'll know the, the vote sh- count, the and show, we don't. Yeah, we don't know the vote count, because we're preparing before we have a live show in Oakland tonight. So... Just heads up that we are talking about events that are ongoing for us, but are history for you. On today's GabFest, the House impeaches the president. Then, what is with the young left's deep, deep unhappiness with Mayor Pete Buttigieg? And then, what were the most important stories of the year? Actually, we went back and looked and thought about what really happened in 2019 that mattered. And we will tell you what really mattered. We will. Emily's nodding. We're going to do it. (laughs) Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. As I said, we're taping as the impeachment debate is happening. The president will almost certainly be impeached by the end of Wednesday, only the third time in American history that will have happened. Fun fact, if you had a baby on the day Bill Clinton was impeached, today is the day that that baby would be able to drink legally. Wow. Turn 21, that Turn baby. 21. Turn 21. Okay. December 19th, 1998, the President Clinton was impeached. And on December 18th, President Trump will be impeached, but December 19th when you listen to this. Right. It's Very well 21st gone. birthday. Yeah. Excellent. So there's something about the pre-Christmas rush that gets the impeachment <laughs> forces moving. Yeah. Why, that, well, that's, let's start with that. Well, why yeah. did they? Why are they rushing this through before Christmas? Well, I have very mixed feelings about the rushing part. And what I mean by that is that the Democrats obviously decided to go ahead based on the evidence they have and exclusively on the grounds of Trump's conduct regarding Ukraine. The other choice was to leave this open, see what various court proceedings down the line might bring in terms of additional witness testimony. And then separately from that is this question of having decided to concentrate only on these two articles that are Ukraine related. I think the problem with having held impeachment open was that it would have meant if nothing dramatic emerged in the next several months, then they would just have sort of petered out and the energy behind impeachment would dissipate, but it it does feel like they really narrowed these grounds down a lot. Yeah, I wonder if a, a middle ground could have been could have been reached to achieve uh, the various objectives Democrats were trying to achieve, which is go through the impeachment process, which which surfaced a lot of kind of just the facts, ma'am, testimony about 
um, all of the issues, but not enough. Uh, Ambassador Bolton didn't testify. Mick Mulvaney didn't testify because the president did not want them to testify. Um, and in Bolton's case, he, he was going to fight it if it went to the courts. So they made a decision not to wait till the courts decided because that would have taken forever. Could you, Emily, have decided if you were the Democrats, we will impeach on this, but then say we can't we're not going to take we're not going to send it to the Senate hmm. because we were blocked by the president and not allowed to but have the, these people. Testify. Can I say answer that? Yes. You so, can. well, that is certainly there's there are members of the Democratic left in the House that are proposing that that right. these articles of impeachment, the impeached impeachment articles, which will be approved, not get sent to the Senate. So no trial starts. Yes. I think that looks that looks weaselly and yeah. weird. You don't have the courage of your convictions. And, well, and, and they're not going to get a better Trump deal out of the Senate. on his defense, right? It means like we've just yeah. impugned you and yes. you don't get to come yeah. back. It looks and right. It looks seems, very unfair. Yeah, right. procedurally, right. due process-wise. And, and, and plus, I, th- I keep coming back. So also it leaves this thing hanging out unresolved and the, the polling is not changing in anyone's favor. Right. And I think I Although come I'm back to... I'm not sure a, that's true. But oh, good. Ooh, get to that in a second. But before you get to that, actually, I want to come back to a point that I think you made last week, John, which was just um, that you don't need to investigate and impeach and try him for his outrageousness and his misbehavior to be in front of the voters. We're all pretty sure that he's not going to be removed from office before the election. He may be removed by losing the election. But he's not going to be removed by conviction from the Senate. That is fairly clear now. And and so you the point is to keep attention on him. And if you're if you're trying to get political gain, if you're a Democrat, is to have the president's wrongdoing exposed to the American public because they're not going to get the they're not going to get the this legislative impeachment solution. They're only going to get uh, sort of a public uh, solution by the election. And Trump does, as you pointed out, Trump does such a good job of of c- kind of creating outrage and drawing attention to himself and he will be doing that in March and April and May and June and October. And they don't need an investigation that's mm-hmm. held open for that to happen. And no amount of evidence is going to change anything in the in the Senate. So if you waited for Bolton or Mulvaney or something, it, it wouldn't change the um, it wouldn't change the, the the dynamic in the Senate anyway. So so why wait? I'm also deeply skeptical that we would really hear yeah. from Mulvaney and Bolton before the election, because what has to happen is that. Trump's this initial posture of blanket immunity, I don't have to let anyone, these like really unlikely and um, extreme claims he's making for executive privilege, that needs to get litigated through the Supreme Court. And then it comes back, assuming the court doesn't side with him, which like I'm pretty sure that those extreme claims would not win out. But then it comes back and you have to negotiate all the specifics. And for sure, some of these communications are going to be protected by executive privilege. He doesn't have zero executive privilege. And that could turn into this long. Yeah, I I feel really, uh, really uncertain that we would have gotten on any court-based resolution before November. Mm-hmm. All right, let's. I want to actually go to John's uh, polling point. So I noted, or I saw on Twitter, somebody else said this. So if it's am I wrong, blame Twitter. That when President Clinton was impeached in 1998, his approval yeah. rating was at its highest point ever. It was at 73. percent I know, isn't that amazing? That yeah. is crazy. That is not it, true today. It is not true today. And what's amazing, although. Well, okay. Was that a sympathy approval rating? No, well, I, I, I haven't um, I haven't looked at the trend. I mean, so first of all, it's amazing any president Seriously. would ever have an approval rating. I mean, Eisenhower did and so forth. But we think of our modern age of, of partisanship. But, um, but 
George W. Bush had that post 9 11. George H. W. Bush had had it in the Iraq War. Right, special case. There was no war that that Clinton was coming back from. There was no rallying around the flag for a national security emergency in Clinton's case. But I was, I I had to double check that figure when I came across it. Um, That's not the case with Donald Trump. His his numbers have not. massively cratered but that's been true of all the things that have challenged his numbers so they are still historically bad for an approval rating i think his net favorable is at negative 14 in the last poll i saw that's an approval is generally in the low 40s right uh mid for low mid 40s um what i was interested in is the washington post poll that had um the question about should the president uh should his should he let his people testify um and uh 64% 64% of Republicans said yes, they should let them testify. Hmm. I thought, wow, that's really high for Republicans. And then, uh, and so I posted that on, on the Twitter machine. And Chris Hayes pointed out that that's probably very likely that there are a number of the Republicans who think he should let them testify because it will be exculpatory. And I went and looked inside the post numbers. And indeed, the two segments you would that are most pro-Trump in the, are conservatives, self-identified conservatives, and white non-college. And those are the two groups with who have the highest percentage in the close to 70 percent who want the aides to testify. Um, so it's a reminder that numbers uh, don't always show you what they uh, right. You mean you they're they, not. So that the implication of that is what is that that those who are most in support of Donald Trump, who most think it's wrong for him to be impeached, want Mulvaney and Bolton to testify because they think they will get up on the stand and say the president did nothing wrong. Hmm, I wonder what they make of the fact that it is, in fact, the president who's blocking their testimony. Perhaps that reality hasn't quite sunk in. I don't know. I, I don't Maybe know. That's not fair. Uh, but I think it's still the case that a majority of the country or a plurality, excuse me, a plurality w- is in favor of impeachment. It's not by a huge margin, but it's still a plurality, Emily. which is not the case in Clinton's case at all. Emily, this Senate trial, we're getting um, sniffs about what it's going to be, and it is clearly shaping up to be brief and superficial. Mitch McConnell has said it's going to be fast. It's going to be in January. There will not be witnesses, or maybe he hasn't said that, but that's the word that leaks out of the McConnell camp. Republicans have rejected uh, minority leader Schumer's proposal that witnesses be called, particularly Mulvaney and Bolton and a couple of other aides. So they won't have heard from the key people. So it is a truism that it can't be good for everybody for the trial to be short and without evidence. But I'm not sure that it's actually better for Republicans than Democrats that the trial be short. It may be good for Democrats. It may be that McConnell mm-hmm. is, in fact, making a bad choice if if his goal is to advance the, the political. Um, and why is it bad for Democrats? Because if it was long, it would seem more distracting. And it would seem more distracting. Yeah. And it would just it wouldn't they wouldn't still wouldn't win at the end. It would be distracting and be confusing. The public is kind of like, let's keep going forward right and there would be no new fact so it would just be like constipation for months well also there's this specter of calling joe biden or hunter biden and trying to basically turn the tables and make this proceeding about their wrongdoing alleged and mcconnell does not seem to be planning on that yeah um i think mcconnell is making the safe choice the kind of long odds choice i would do what he was doing if i was him because you just if you let it mushroom you don't you could lose control over it pretty quickly he does have to get 51 votes to approve calling witnesses i assume that's not going to be a problem for him and that people are basically going to go along there are some interesting to approve not calling witnesses yeah he needs 51 republicans on board for the major procedural moves he makes as i understand it 
you know, people like Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, you might imagine, could have some doubts about some aspects of trying to really truncate this proceeding. And for Collins, impeachment's pretty popular in Maine the last time I looked, and she's not popular. So that would seem to have some electoral implications for her in particular. But that's only one person. It just seems so unlikely that enough Republicans are going to see it in their political interest. And look, frankly, when you see that Republican voters have they have not budged on impeachment. I looked at this last week and they started it's September 24th when the hearing started. They had 9.7 percent approval rating for impeachment. And now I think it's at 9.4. That's huge. <laughs> can I um, can we talk about the letter the president wrote in yes. response to Nancy Pelosi? Please. Let's. Because I think Temperate it was and wise. I thought it was a masterstroke on the president's part. Yes. So when it first came out, uh, many, many people said this is completely unhinged. It had it was basically like a rally, but in a letter, right? So it had all of the disconnected exclamation thinking, points. exclamation points, lots of uh, deliberate falsehoods told with for the purpose of misleading people, uh, d- lots of deliberate falsehoods told for the purposes of confusing people. All of the kind of bags of tricks were all in all there, collected. all collected in one special gift uh, package for the holiday season. And a lot of people are like, this is bonkers. Oh, my God. It's it's evidence that he should be impeached. For me, what it read like was, A, it read like a rally in, in, the, in letter form. And so what's the purpose of those rallies? It's to keep the Republican base on his side. But more to the point, it's to first disseminate the information, which was disseminated as everybody said, oh, my gosh, the letter's so crazy. President says, thank you very much. Now, twice as many people know about it. Second thing is any senator who is wavering now has constituents in his state who have been informed by this letter. If it had been a dry uh, discussion of the legal points, they would not be enraged. They are now enraged. And so he has put more adhesion between, you know, he and the Republican senators are more stuck together as a result of that letter than if it had been an actual legal letter, which apparently his lawyers didn't look at until it was done. I totally agree. And the other thing I thought was really well crafted about it is there is falsity and wild exaggeration in it. But you have to know something to know what's false and misleading. It's really very canny, I think, in taking quotes out of context, making various moves. Like once you see the fact checked version of it that's up on the New York Times website, you can see through it. But you have to read it through that filter. If you just repeat it verbatim, it seems like he's got a bunch of really good points. And and we should say that none of us in discussing it in this way are for a second uh, trying to normalize what it is, which is an abrogation of the duties of the office, which are to have some respect for truth and for the process and for your role in a constitutional system. So all of those things are uh, uh, are confronted by this letter and it breaks with all of those traditions and it breaks with honest and good doing. But as a political matter, it's quite effective. Well, and I think the fact that we're actually responding to the theater of it means that in some ways this is a really successful breaking of norms, right? Like if you can both admire the political uh, craft of it and then say, well, wait a second, like the wait a second becomes less powerful. Well, let me ask you this question. If it's a court of law, let's say uh, Johnny Cochran, when he defended O.J. Simpson, you know, he said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Right. He used rhyme to bring it up down into one thing. That was very clever. Right. 
it wasn't great legal genius citing previous case law, blah, blah, blah. So in defense of, a, of your client, theatricality sometimes is a big deal. It's not within the normal lines, but it does get the guy off the hook. So it felt consistent with that, which is not, you know, which is not just about politics. It's a way court, courts work, too. All right. Let's finish up uh, with this point. My point. So <laughs> between the impeachment of Andrew Johnson and the impeachment, well, Richard Nixon was not impeached, but it would have been impeached. So I'm going to count that as an impeachment. Resignation. Is uh, 92 years. Some, in that order. Between Nixon's resignation and the Clinton impeachment is 24 years. Between the Clinton impeachment and today is 21 years. How long until there's another impeachment? I say it is... We will not get another 10 years without impeachment. Oh, really? Ugh, I hope you're yeah. wrong. So, I mean, I find unnerving the argument that we are on our way to normalizing impeachment. It's going to just become another tool in the toolbox. I take comfort in the fact that if you were going to make that argument, I feel like the Clinton impeachment was a more powerful example because the wrongdoing, the, you know, perjury or alleged perjury by Bill Clinton had to do with his private conduct because of his high approval rating at the time. There were just factors about that proceeding that seemed more um, specific and more a trivializing of the procedure, the hmm. process to point. me than That's this one. Sure. I yeah. remember that before this impeachment, the conventional wisdom was if you go impeaching a president, it's dead disaster for you because right. you remember you know how it basically led to the losses in 1998 despite Newt Gingrich's predictions that Republicans would pick up seats and then when he was wrong about Republicans picking up seat, seats and then impeachment not being a problem he was then booted basically out of his out of the speakership so it was seen as toxic so in this case if the conventional wisdom it's going is that it's maybe going to get easier maybe we should just say, actually, no, it won't. Also, this, this facts of the case here are so so different. The president is is very unpopular and super unpopular relative to how well the economy is doing. So yes. it's, we, I think, right. special case. Withdrawn. Mayor Pete, or as he is now hashtagged, never Pete, has become a strange bugaboo to a set of voters. Are those voters Republicans who don't like a Democrat? No, they're not. Are they homophobes who don't want a gay candidate? They are not. Are they old people who are grumpy at a young, successful presidential candidate? No, they are young white progressives, people who are not unlike Mayor Pete himself, and they are agitated at the prospect of Pete Buttigieg topping Bernie Sanders or topping Elizabeth Warren to become the Democratic nominee. So, Emily, where did this backlash against Buttigieg come from? What, what is its source? Why now? I mean, it seems like it's sort of liberal Twitter, liberal millennial Twitter, as far as I can tell. I mean, I just can't tell how extensive it is or if it's just loud, which is true about everything. <laughs> about everything <laughs> in social life. Media. Um, and I, so I guess the, what I can understand about it is this feeling of like, who is this guy? Especially, I think if he's sort of a peer of yours, you might be more irritated by that, right? Like mayor of fourth largest city in Indiana, not someone who in previous elections would be top tier presidential material. And then I think for people on the left, there's this sense that Buttigieg is moderating his positions, is positioning himself as an alternative to Biden. And they don't want that wing of the party to triumph, whether it's the old version or the young version. And so they're going after him for that reason. 
I think everything that Emily says is right. Uh, Derek Thompson, I thought, wrote a great piece in The Atlantic, kind of going through the four reasons. <laughs> I like and, that and it, was, too. it was just, it was really wonderful, and I recommend it to everybody to read it. But I just picking up on your point, Emily, so he embodies a certain kind of behavior that they don't like, and he embodies a certain kind of politics. And if the central debate for me has always been in the Democratic race, um, you know, do we go bold because um, that's the only way we're going to win? Then he is symptomatic of the triangulation of the Clinton years, but without, well, which they never liked, even when Bill Clinton was winning. And, and he's not even a senator. Right, right. Well, and, and I meant even Bill Clinton. They didn't like his triangulation yes. when he came in with and the And he's Democrat. not even a governor. And he's not even a governor. And so it means even if he wins, as bad as Donald Trump may be, it means that he's going to win by having sent a kind of moderate signal, which means that the results will be inevitably moderate. But, but why does he get that vitriol and Joe Biden, who is much more likely to defeat Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, to name the two most progressive candidates, does not get that vitriol. Well, from because that he's group. come because Buttigieg has been riding, rising in the polls, and it's kind of his turn to take a beating in the just sort of like cycle of campaigns in which like you no one really notices you and you're on the rise and you're like the new flavor of the month and then the press starts taking some wax at you and people start finding you worth irritation. I think that's the cycle. And we could come out of the cycle and Buttigieg could still have good poll numbers. He could still win Iowa. And I think back to Emily's point is he's doing in real time what they don't like, which is slightly tweaking his positions, kind of being all things to all people. Um, And the McKinsey background is getting more attention in a way that if you're on the left starts to seem disappointing, right? McKinsey is tarnished right now based on news reporting about its government contracts, its work abroad, deservedly tarnished, I would argue. And it's not a great moment to be like, hey, look at me. I'm a former management consultant. I mean, there is this quality of him being, and Derek Thompson gets at this, traitor to his generation, that his generation is a generation that seeks to upend a system. And it's a system that he in, you know, so join so avidly, you know, as a as a as a soldier, as a Rhodes Scholar, Ivy League graduate, you know, he's somebody who believes in that system. The millennial grind is an unattractive type, I guess. He's sort of well, an old soul a little well, bit, the, too, you, in a way that might yeah. be annoying if you were his age. Not that I can imagine such a thing. Do you remember there was this line about Al Gore, which stuck to him, that he was an old person's idea of a young person? Michael Kinsley came up with that line. Is it Mike? I think. I Are think. you now going to stick that on to Pete Buttigieg? Well, Pete Buttigieg oh, people, has some of that same quality. Yeah. 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 I, I had this feeling, as I was reading the, the pieces about this phenomenon, I had this feeling it just kind of immediately hit me, which is how my daughter reacts when my wife tells her she, she should wear a coat when it's cold outside, which is Buttigieg is the olds version of what you youngsters should be like uh, and and should and, and should like for the party. I mean, because this is the debate about what's going to be successful for the party. And that gets to this question of where is the election going to take place? And if it's really about 100,000 votes in eight states... The pro-Buttigieg argument is those 100,000 votes in those more conservative states are places he can play and Bernie and and Elizabeth Warren can't. But, I mean, the biggest difference to me between Buttigieg and Biden is one of them has the support of African-American voters and one of them does not. And those African-American voters matter in those states. They matter at large. Right. That this is the Twitter objections to Buttigieg are not nearly as important to the fact that he cannot so far, it's not attracted any black so voters. So now play that out for me, though. Why does that matter? Why do black voters matter? Well, yeah, they matter they're... because they're in they're such a loyal heart and soul component of the party. Right. And they matter because their depressed turnout in places like Detroit were 
you know, dispository yeah, or whatever North that Carolina. word so is. The reason <laughs> I asked that, the reason I asked that, you're the lawyer. The reason I asked that question is that there, a lot of what the Democratic Party is going through, the the Republican Party went through, and so people would say, "But wait a minute, where are diehard, you know, religious voters going to go if they they're not going to like a vote for Hillary they Clinton? Can stay home. They're, they so they can stay home. Now, here's the argument that's interesting to me about African Americans is. What have they heard about Donald Trump from all the leaders of the Democratic Party, which is that he's a stone cold racist? So is it the case that they wouldn't turn out if if that were if that were so that I'm interested in how that plays out? It's a it's a big question. Like, but it's a risky it's you, a risky thing. for You Democrats. can have a sense that Trump is a threat because of racism and still want you're the alternative to feel like they're really your person, right? Totally. And I think that's what's lacking with Buttigieg. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I totally get that. I'm just wondering if your choice in the end of the day is between Donald Trump and Pete Buttigieg and, it, and Donald Trump has been associated by your party for months and months and months with this attack on your identity. Maybe you come out in the same numbers. Maybe, uh, maybe. but, but, but if a small not, dip is a big deal and maybe sure, some of sure. you stay home. And, and, you know, people feel like voting is futile for reasonable reasons, right? Like they feel like their lives aren't changing enough, that things haven't improved. It's it's hard to motivate totally. people to vote in some Which ways. Which is why you usually try and get people to vote on identity grounds because then they're voting for, for as a piece of personal agency, not having to do with the presidency necessarily, but how dare you try and take this away from me? And, and I guess what I'm wondering then is really whether the constant drumbeat from Democrats about the president being a racist is actually not that powerful or maybe it's not enough yeah um i want to finish on another question i have about Buttigieg. one of the things that i think distinguishes him particularly in this field from certainly from sanders and biden he is preternaturally calm his calmness is really striking when you listen to him talk and you just watch him interact with people it's it's kind of astonishing is that a strength or a weakness i mean i think it's clear, clearly it's a characterological strength in general but as a politician is that calmness help him or hurt him? I think in many moments it helps. And you, on the debate stage, it's been a strength. But when you watch the footage of him dealing with people who are unhappy with him in South Bend and the black community, it became a weakness. It was so cerebral. He seemed a little robotic in that setting. And if you think of the part of the president where you want someone in a difficult moment to kind of come through for the nation and embody, you know, like a big We've had this with these terrible mass shootings. You want someone who feels like they're giving you heart and some emotional centering. I wonder. I mean, he probably would be able to figure out how to do it. I don't think it's like impossible to generate that. But he doesn't seem to be natural at that part of the job. Well, it's interesting because you know that was the charge against Obama a little bit too cerebral, too Spock like. I think for the eulogizing part of the of the job where you are the consoler in chief, I think he could do that. It would be, you know, in the tradition of Clinton's eulogies and and uh, and Obama's and Reagan's. When everything goes to hell, I think the calmness is good. Where it doesn't, and what's an important part of the job is, you need to be a little crazy in the job and relentless about your ideas. And crazy when everybody's saying, "No, you can't do that. You have to like put grind the screwdriver in, regardless of everybody telling you it's going to blow up the machine, because it's the only way you can get the machine to work." And so does he have that quality? And that's what people argue, I think, with Sanders and Warren, which is, you know, stop telling me about how this isn't going to work. They are going to be so uh, have the courage of their convictions 
coming out of every pore and somehow they're going to make a way. I don't, you know, we can ask you a question whether that really is the way things work or not. But um, he hasn't shown that yet. And that's the way you get to the extent you get anything done. You get you get it done. Slate Plus members, you know who you are. You get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And today's Slate Plus segment, real special one, a very special Slate Plus segment. We're going to read you poetry. Actually, I'm not going to read poetry. I'm going to read something else. But we're going to read to you some favorite passages of ours or poems of ours. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. If you look back at the year 2019, it's the end of the year. We're all looking back. What happened? What are the big stories? What did we miss? What are the most important things that happened? So we're going to try to do that. Uh, we now have the perspective of the year. There have been there was tons of different stories. Amazing things happened this year. Some of which were really important. Some of which were trivial. And uh, I'm I'm interested in us having a conversation about when we look back. When each of us looks back, what are the things that stick out most as as really representing big themes of of history or big themes of what's happening in the world and i mean i have i have four myself but oh my god you had four i have four all right but but I I, i'm not gonna four. start oh. four. emily why don't you start oh, yeah so to take a step back like really to twenty thousand feet i feel like the big question usually people go to forty thousand or thirty five twenty thousand feet is like very low it's like the plane that's fuel not inefficient high it's okay. very it's, they try to get higher than that 
You're not really above the weather. There. I just, I don't know what I just portrayed about myself. I'm <laughs> skimming the treetops. If you want real perspective, ask John and David. If you take a step back, the to me, the biggest issues in the world, which are not just this year, maybe they're like of the decade, are the intersection between immigration and climate change and how mass migration, which I think we've only are just beginning to Im- imagine, is going to affect how countries see themselves, how people feel about citizenship and about the way the world's population is presumably going to move. So with that as my own backdrop, uh, the stories that were about both how immigrants are moving, their reception in the United States, you know, in particular, our family separation policy, the distress about that. But then in the end, we haven't really walked that back. We've basically... um, the Trump administration has really tried with some blocking from the courts to move the country away from a traditional understanding of asylum. And then I think you also see in Europe a lot of nervousness and reaction to immigrants that we're going to continue to trace through and is going to matter. And I will stop there, though I have other ideas as well. So I think there one of the things we saw, and we talked about it in segments about the chaos voters, we talked about it in just throughout impeachment talking about the influence of Fox News on the White House, talking about it with Brexit, talking about it with Israel, is this phenomenon of kind of the chaos voters and the polarization and the loss of effectiveness and coherence in political systems and the loss of effectiveness and coherence in the U.S. political system. It's complete polarization, which, again, we see in the impeachment we just talked about, uh, and the development of totally separate narratives that people have. We see that in the United States. We see it in Great Britain with Brexit. We see it in Europe, we see it in in India. We see see that as a piece of it in India. Sort of this nationalism and tribalism, separate narratives, and a kind of loss of faith in the in the basic democratic political systems that have developed in many countries. And that's that to me seems to be the big one of the big real themes of the year. So uh, mine was one of those, although the, the, they're connected because the liberal order that used to care about refugees and migrants was kept in part by the United States or other democracies who believe that. And you remember when um, Theresa May and and uh, President Trump had that joint press conference together and there was a question about migrants and immigration and she referred back to our values and she meant the, you know, the kind of liberal Western order. Freedom House does a survey every year about the march of democracy and uh, it is at its third it is at its lowest point in a decline of the last 13 years. So it continues to go down. And it's not just in fledgling democracies or you know countries right. that were struggling with it, but in the main old-timey actors, no, no actor larger than the United States, which used to feel it was invested in. And it's amazing when you go back and read uh, Ronald Reagan's speech to the British Parliament. It was invested in promoting democracy, not like promoting democracy in countries like Afghanistan and and Iraq uh, and the Bush project, but just the idea of doing everything you can to foster freedom and democracy because it was healthy on on its own terms, and that that's gone away. One thing this segues to, I think, is the sense in the United States and in some other countries among white people, especially less educated white people, that their status, their lives are shrinking, that their sense of 
decline, that we actually have statistics in the United States that lifespan is declining for this particular yes, group. That's a big the story. Opioid the opioid crisis sure. is linked to this. This just sense of loss of power, the the fear that immigrants are coming and taking things from you, that it was one thing to live in a country where there were like some people of color. But now in the next, you know, 50 years, we're going to be asking white Americans to really give up their majority status in this country without violence and without trying to cling to it so desperately that they destroy the democratic order. And that I don't think is a phenomenon we've really seen a country accomplish. So when you think of it as those terms, I don't mean to excuse the racism that the sense of threat can engender and perpetuate. But in some ways, it's a tall order. And I feel like we are seeing these symptoms of it. You mean it's a tall order to manage how to be a leader or how to have a government that works when diversity is happening and changing so fast? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, when you were quoting Reagan a minute ago, I was thinking that he was speaking to a kind of largely white country in which people had, you know, America's always had heterogeneity. It's one of our most celebrated facets. I totally believe that we are stronger for all our immigrants. But I think for a lot of white Americans, there was a more sense of social fabric and commonality then than they feel now. Well, that's right. I mean, one of the challenges for our presidents and our next one, whoever, whether it's in four or eight, uh, in four years or one year, is um, is to, to live in a world of uh, all of the diversity that's happening in America, how to manage it and um, uh, both in terms of policy, but then also in how to talk about it. Uh, and th- this is one of the obviously big debates with Donald Trump is that he is his he's not as interested in how to manage it. He's interested in using it um, successfully, um, which when I said to Bob Corker when he was leaving the Senate, and I've said this a few times in the interviews for the book, I've, I've said, you mean, you know, like you think that's what he does. And everybody looks at me like I'm crazy. They're like, he says that's what he does. You know, in other words, driving those divisions as a way to win political power. Let's move on to other themes of the year. So I want to identify another theme that I saw this year, and that is that I think we are in the middle of a period of enormous, um, that, that, that if you look back at 1968, 1969, late 60s, early 70s, it was a period of mass protest, chaos, political instability, um, which I think people recognized at the time. I think we are in the middle of that. And we haven't quite recognized it. And I would say we haven't had the same level of rioting, but this year we had the Proud Boys in Portland we had these political mass shootings, like the El Paso mass murder, uh, the mass Three shooting, Jersey City, the mm-hmm. Three of Life Synagogue, I think might have been in 18, but I it's, right. but it's all, it's, linked. it's a theme that I think we're in it. I think there is this, the one thing I see in this year is that, that there is this political instability, political chaos, fear that is, that is uh, pervading the country. And I think it's just going to get worse. So that's another theme that I saw this year. This isn't a theme, but it um, is uh, that the Afghanistan papers are something that we talked about last week, but that are the more you read them and the more you um, look at all the decision making that went into them that still exists and all the mind. It, it's it's a story that just everybody blew past and that everybody should spend a lot more time thinking about. I want to bring up I think this is the year that the country and perhaps the world finally realized that the promises of social media companies and technology companies in general, that they are making the world better is just hollow. And in a lot of cases, just completely wrong. And there was just much more willingness to reckon with the bad consequences of Facebook and YouTube and 
and even Amazon, which I think is like a really healthy, good development that we're really thinking in a more complex way about the implications of what these companies do. Do you think you'll look back at social media in TK number of years the way you did your heaviest period of drinking in high school or college and think like, man, I can't believe it. I used to do shots of liquor and, you know, and then at midnight thought that was a good idea. And you just feel so distant and so dissipated and harmful. I mean, I kind of hope we think about that because then it would mean that like tweets were not driving television coverage and people's awareness in a way that I think has been so problematic, right? It's not, I mean, there are so... There are many different facets to this. One is the way in which governments have figured out how to manipulate social media in a way that perpetuates disinformation campaigns and makes elections less fair. That's like a big problem in itself. Then there's the link between social media and legacy media and the way in which someone's tweeting will drive television coverage. Super lazy way of going about covering anything to just look at what's happening on Twitter. Implicitly and explicitly. Yeah. In other words, they will literally say, I saw this on Twitter and the, and the president obviously uses knows that and uses that and uses it brilliantly, yes. uh, brilliantly from the from the sort of Machiavellian. And sense. then there are all the privacy implications, right, yeah. which are with us all the time as well and are another kind of theme. And people have consumers have not figured out a way to really mobilize and fight back. It's been too confusing, too unclear what's really at stake. But I hope that there is a rising awareness about all of those problems. I have one more theme which is, I think this was the year that we recognized, there's been great concern about the Trump presidency from lots of different quarters. This is the year I think we realized the way in which his undermining the institutions of government for his own corrupt and personal purposes is so dangerous. And I think we look at this with the the entire Ukraine issue is one, Bill Barr's emergence and the use of Bill Barr to take the weaponry of the justice system and apply it in, in sinister ways. The national emergency declaration to build the wall that was this year, the purge of the Homeland Security Department, the census case. These are all examples where the kind of basic fun, the attacks on the State Department, on the on uh, the ambassadors. These are all cases where the institution of government, which we've been relied on, the kind of steadiness of that is being eroded and very strongly by President Trump. And I think that this is a year we really saw a ton of that. And it's been horrible. I think there are different categories of that. I think the wall, I think you could argue the wall and going around specific congressional intent on the wall, um, separate in part from uh, Ukraine, which was also a denial of specific congressional intent and a law he signed. But I think the wall in, in for me is in a category of this is what I campaigned on. This is what I was voted for. I'm going to use I'm going to push the executive branch absolutely to its breaking point to do what my people who elected me to do as a uh, which is slight, which is what Democrats wanted Bill, uh, Barack Obama to do, which is slightly different than those other categories, which are feel like much more norm threatening. But I would add, if I may, just very quickly, is the complete and total ownership of the Republican Party from Donald Trump, which I think um, really, I mean, on every possible issue, uh, whether it's trade, deficits, the party, it, Russia. I mean, the Republican Party did very well for 50, 60 years as being the party that was more anti-Russia, and he and and he has now basically flipped Republican sentiment completely on that. Um, so on these key policy issue areas, at least rhetorically, some people would say, well, they never really believe those things, whatever. We don't see that kind of rhetorical flip 
in politics in such a short period of time, then also on values and morality. But then also when you look at some of the Republican senators who are now some of his strongest defenders, by which I mean they're willing to to act ways that used to be outside of what even, you know, you, what even senators used to do. And I'm thinking of Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. They haven't just quietly gone along. They have risen to his defense and said things that are implausible or that are embarrassing relative to things they said before. These are men that he mocked, belittled, and over whose bones he ascended to greatness. And so they would have all these reasons for not rising up in his defense, and yet they're doing kind of best-in-class performance. in and, and why are they doing that? It's because of his extraordinary power in the party, and they, like all politicians before them, are, are uh, attracted to power. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter. We're going to have some cocktails tonight. We're gonna, we are going to have cocktails tonight. What are we going to be chattering about with each other as we have our cocktails? Emily cocktails before my red eye flight home i have a super local chatter i'm gonna hopefully make it relevant to more than just my neighborhood although maybe not so i live on a street in which on the corner there is this wonderful italian grocery store that's been there for 31 years true (laughs) called romeo and cesare's really just called romeo's and it is closing um, around christmas this year which is a tragedy for our neighborhood um so I have just like a huge feeling of appreciation for um, Romeo Simeone, who owns the store, and his daughter, Francesca. So now I'm going to try to save this with, I was thinking, why do I appreciate the store so much? And I feel like the store I'm about to tell is not one that you could tell about most grocery stores, but man, it would be great if we lived in a world where everyone had this. So Years ago, when my younger son was littler, we sent him with some money to buy something at Romeo's one day, and he came home with what we sent you to buy and all the money. <laughs> and oh. We were like, you need to go and pay for that. And he was like, oh, like he really basically <laughs> thought of the store as like his kitchen. The cupboard, yeah. Yes. Now, it was not his kitchen and we did send him back and he did pay for it. But I mentioned this recently to Fran, Romeo's daughter, who often works the cash register. And she was like, oh, of course we understood. Like, of course we would never have ar- had your child arrested for <laughs> shoplifting. And like, it would just be a better world if every nine-year-old boy could go to the corner store and accidentally take something without paying for it, get sent back to pay for it, but like not pay any repercussions for it. So thank you, Romeo and Fran. <laughs> Emily's endorsing larceny. Yes, exactly. John. Just don't call the police. What crime are you going to endorse? <laughs> well, I so I have two very short chatters. One is an amazing um uh, piece uh, that the in the Times about we're in Oakland and it um it just happens to be about an o- Oakland homeless encampment. The it's an amazing collection of pictures um and interviews with the people who live there. It's by Thomas Fuller and Josh uh Hainer, I guess is how you pronounce it. Um and there, Thomas wrote uh, about this guy, Gilbert, uh, Gilberto Gonzalez Rioja, who just go read it. And the pictures are amazing. And then they went to Mexico City and compared the homeless encampment in Oakland with the shantytown in Mexico City. It's, a, it's just it's, – anyway, it's, ama- it's really, really well done. My other chatter is about a 5,700-year-old human genome and oral microbiome that was found from chewed birch pitch. So basically, this looks like a piece of bubble gum. This young girl was found. They found this birch pitch and they were able to determine all of this. First of all, check out her whole DNA and basically figure out what she'd eaten. And now they they are this article in the journal Nature 
um, thinks that birch pitch might be, which they chewed for medicinal benefits, um, uh, basically that it might have all of this old DNA and allow studies to go back and study more than just this random one one girl. So it's not only an amazing discovery in its own right, but it might be the key to opening up further discoveries about DNA and how we came to be humans. Cool. My chatter, people who know me well know that I am a bubble tea addict. I have bubble tea every day that I'm allowed to. Some days I can't find a bubble tea place, but I will find it. On those sad days. On those there's very sad days when I can't find a bubble tea. Um, in fact, I'm going to get a bubble tea right after this. Wait, I was going to say, I don't think you've had one today. No, I'm going to get one after after we have lunch. Uh, and there was a great story in the Washington Post about the Taiwan bubble tea wars. Taiwan is the ground zero bubble tea. It was invented there. And there's a tremendous innovation in bubble tea that's coming out of Taiwan. And most of the very successful chains internationally, including in the U.S., are actually Taiwanese chains. But what's happened is that these chains are also doing business in, in addition to doing business in Taiwan and the U.S., they're doing a lot of business in China. And they have to tow the the party line in China and say things that, that comport with what the Chinese government once said about Hong Kong and about Tibet and about Taiwan even. And, and so they have ended up sort of supporting the Chinese government over Hong Kong, for example, and that has made Taiwanese in Taiwan extremely unhappy. And so now there's a boycott of a lot of the Taiwanese grown bubble tea places that are doing business in China and people aren't going to them in Taiwan. So even though they're thriving in China, they're doing poorly in Taiwan because people are like, why are you supporting the Chinese government, which is not a government we agree with. And so now there's a flourishing of independent Taiwanese bubble tea shops that people are frequenting. Very fascinating. For those of us in the bubble tea know, very fascinating issue. Is all the bubble tea good or you're not sure? Well, the Taiwanese bubble tea places are great. Okay. And they are so innovative. There's just so much stuff going on. Wait, there. what's the what is the avenue of innovation? There's this thing called cheese tea, which sounds gross, but it's a it's kind of a creamy layer on top of your bubble tea. There's different things you put in them besides bub- boba, did with other form like pudding and kinds of jelly it's that are in them. dessert. But wait, full dessert. on dessert. If, oh, sure, dessert. Let me ask you yeah. this question. If if it's bubble tea without the boba, how is, aren't you taking the bubble? No, you out? have the boba too. You oh, you have the have, boba too. You can. It's not just boba. Yeah, and then there are different forms of fruit tea. There are, there's these tiger milk ones, which are like, have some weird brown sugary concoction, which I've never had because the lines are always too long at those places and they seem very sweet. Uh, anyway, a lot of, a lot of bubble tea There's innovation. Options. One when you bite into the tapioca, a a metal spike shoots through your jaw. That doesn't sound good at all, uh, John. It's a, it's a, some some of our listeners will get where, where that came from. Oh, all right. Superhero reference. Anyway, don't don't ask Who him. Knows? Don't ask. Let's leave it in mystery. So, listeners, you've also been giving us great chatters. There were really good chatters this week. You tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest, and this one is so epic. It's from ionic tonic at ionic tonic <laughs> and it's pointing us to a, a twitter account um from at greenly jw who goes by surprised eel historian and it's a series of tweets and i actually haven't investigated who greenly uh jw is it's a series of tweets about the importance of eels in the medieval and and uh kind of renaissance british economy that eels were often paid used to pay rent that eels would be john you're as a catholic they were they were what is it you can't they were not fish 
They were not counted as fish. So you could have them on Friday. You could have them or on during Lent. You could have them during. I think it was during Lent. It was whatever. Because you're supposed to eat fish on Friday. Yeah, during no. Lent, and so. eels count. Or eels counted as fish, but they also counted they because they ace they they didn't understand how they reproduced. They didn't. They had no carnal quality, and so that you were allowed to eat them at all kinds of oh, occasions sure. where you couldn't eat other things. And there are all these rules about you know particular ponds. There's a there's a um, an example of. Uh, of in 1179, King Henry II gave his best otter hunter some property in Aylesbury with a condition the king could stop by up to three times a year and get a meal of three eels. There was a, a, a Henry the First, the King Henry the First died after eating a meal of eels. Ooh. There you'd pay, you know, there are feasts where a hundred thousand eels will be ordered. Anyway, fascinating uh, Twitter account about eels, which are disgusting, incidentally. So don't, ugh, ugh, I once saw an eel in the real world and it was gross. But Twitter account. Amazing. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, who's here with us in Oakland at Skyline Studios, Brian Matheson and Anne-Marie Plo. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week with our Conundrum Show. This is the... ...you about your box of chocolates entitled The Wizzo Quality of Assortment. Ah, good, yes. If I may begin... Monty Python? That's from a Monty Python sketch. Okay, good. The Crunchy Frog sketch. Oh, no, I don't Uh, know that I want to... Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, Good. Nice. Good. Glad to hear it. That's funny. Oh, you shopping was difficult. Yes, I know. Well, maybe you should do it online. I don't know. I don't go to the malls anymore. So, Slate Plus, today we are going to talk about... Uh, we're not really going to talk about anything. We had an idea a few weeks ago that we would read poems and we never got around to it. But then we were like, well, let's do it. We're here together. And uh, I'm actually not going to read a poem. I because... think we should do this at the end of every year. Yeah, it should be I a agree. new annual I, tradition. It's an annual tradition. Have we done it before? We did it once before. I'm afraid I read the poem that I'm about to read. Before. I have a fear that I've read the thing I'm about I to read. I know too. this Shoot. is a new poem because okay. it's a new poem. All right. Let's start with La Baz, then, since we know it's new material. <laughs> so I chatted about my friend Dwayne Betts's new book of poetry, which is called Felon. And this is a poem from that book called Blood History. The things that abandon you get remembered different, as precise as the English language can be with words like penultimate and perseverate. There is not a combination of sounds that describe only that leaving. Once, drinking and smoking with buddies, a friend asked if I'd longed for a father. Had he said wanted, I would have dismissed him in the way that youngins dismiss it all. A shrug, sarcasm, a jab to his stomach, laughter. But he said longing. And in a different place, I might have wept. Said once, my father lived with us, and then he didn't. And it fucked me up so much that I never thought about his leaving until I held my own son in my arms and only now speak on it. A man who drank Boone's Farm and Mad Dog-like water once told me, and some friends, that there is no word for father where he comes from, not like we know it. There, the word father is the same as the word for listen. The blunts we passed around let us forget our tongues. Not that much, though. But what if the old head knew something, and if you have no father, you can't hear straight? Years later, another friend wondered why I named my son after my father. You know, that's a thing. Turn your life to a prayer that no dead man gonna answer. Mm. John, that's good. What's your poem? Uh, mine, and I apologize if I've read this before to the listeners of the Gabfest, but it bears repeating. It's uh, "Sorting It Out" by Philip Booth. 
At the table she used to sew at, he uses his brass desk scissors to cut up a shirt. Not that the shirt was that far gone, one ragged cuff, one elbow through, but here he is, cutting away the collar she long since turned. What gets to him, finally, using the scissors like a bright claw, is prying buttons off. After they've leapt, spinning on the floor, he bends to retrieve both sizes. He intends to save them in some small box. He knows he has a reason to save, if only he knew where a small box used to be kept. I do not have a poem. I have my favorite uh, writing in English is by Lytton Strachey. It's a book called Eminent Victorians. <laughs> and in particular, his, his, it's a series of short biographies, short, very acidic biographies of Victorian characters. And one of them that he profiles is Florence Nightingale. And I love the beginning of his, of his essay about Florence Nightingale. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.